All right, Luke 12, 28 through 32. But if God so clothes the grass, uh, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and, all, and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land, of, in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw that the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of, uh, of the Negeb, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and, and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people, uh, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spoiled out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, uh, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that that we had died in, those, in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall back by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before, uh, before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Je Jephunneh, who were among, the, among those who had uh, spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the, all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to the stone, said to stone with them, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
But the glory of the Lord appeared at the end of the tent, uh, at the at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Numbers 13, 25 through 14, 10. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Josue. Doing double duty today. We appreciate you reading for us. Um, we are continuing our Advent series, talking about the Advent of Christ throughout all of Scripture. Our main point is that the Advent, which is the Latin word for coming, is a continual theme of the entire Bible, and that often many of the stories we're told in Scripture have tried to place the emphasis on us, or maybe we've heard them as moralistic tales about us being the center of the story, rather than Jesus, the coming King, and His coming kingdom. So last week we talked about the danger of seeing the Abraham and Isaac story as just a moralistic tale about sacrificing your idols. Uh, we, we saw it as God fulfilling His promises to provide redemption through Christ, giving Abraham and Isaac a foreshadowing of the coming King. Well, today we're going to talk about the Israelites on the corner of taking the promised land of Canaan and see how the advent is awaiting the coming kingdom, the coming land. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God and the Christian church, uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the kingdom of God actually means. If I were to ask you today, how would you describe the kingdom of God, I can almost bet that each of you would come up with a, in many different perspectives, many even biblically correct perspectives. Uh, for some of you, you're focusing on the spiritual aspect of the kingdom, that it's eternal, that we'd be worshiping with God in His presence forever, and you'd be right. Some of you might be talking about the cultural aspects of the kingdom, that every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping together would, would be present, and, and some of you might bring up the individual aspects of the kingdom that there'd be no more sickness, no more death, that there would have, we would have restored bodies. And all of these things are deeply profound and incredibly wonderful to dwell on when we think about God's kingdom. But if you had to narrow it down, if you had to force me to say what the kingdom of God is all about, it's about Sabbath. It's about true peace. Sabbath is this idea of this rest of rulership. Peace with God spiritually in His kingdom. Peace with God in the kingdom culturally. Peace in the individual with ourselves, mind, body, soul, spirit, heart, strength. True peace, the Sabbath, is what the kingdom of God is all about. So Scripture heavily explores this idea of the Sabbath rest in the kingdom through this theme of land all throughout Scripture. Think about Abraham's call to go to the land that God would tell him. Think about the, the Davidic covenant that his kingdom, his land would have no end. And, and even think about the desires of the Israelites when they were in exile. That what was their first thing that they wanted to do when they returned? They wanted to rebuild the walls of Israel and the temple. Why? Because you don't have a kingdom without a land. You can't have peace on all sides if you don't have a home to rest in. And so we get to this passage of Scripture today in the book of Numbers, a book which original title I like way better than the English title we've given it as the book of Numbers. Um, in Hebrew, the title is, uh, the book of Numbers is actually In the Wilderness, which I think is actually a much better title for, to describe what's happening in here, right? Okay. Um, and 
what we find is the book is, is, is focusing on the wilderness wandering of the people of God searching for true peace. And what we find along in their journey is a master class of trying to find your true peace in something other than the advent of God. This text today is, is pivotal against the judgment of God's people. This one incident in the book of Numbers is the single reason why the first generation of the freed people of God would never see the promised land. The reason why the second generation would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness and it's because about the four things that we'll examine here today that reminds us what true peace is. Four things. Advent and this text reminds us, one, that true peace doesn't come from consensus. Two, true peace doesn't come from familiarity. Three, true peace doesn't come without difficulty. And four, true peace doesn't come without Christ. So let's examine how first how true peace doesn't come from consensus. Now, a bit of the background here for our text here today. Uh, the first 10 chapters of number is this sort of grand preparation for the people of God to begin moving towards the promised land from where they have encamped at Mount Sinai. So they're preparing all these elements, getting ready for the journey ahead. God prepares the tribes to go, prepares the laws and the rules regarding worship, and they go. And almost immediately, they start getting into trouble. The wilderness is just a hard place to be. And that's why we call it the wilderness. So they begin instantly to challenge God's plan and call for them. Now, they're heading to this land called Canaan, which is the place is known as the promised land. Uh, it can't literally get any clearer than, where, than that on where your destination is. <laughs> you know, I, I know sometimes in our walk with God, we find ourselves about confused about where God is leading us, but, but Israel cannot make any excuses about where God was leading them here. From Abraham, they were told that the promise, about the promise that God would establish not just a people, but a nation. And this nation was the land that they was promised ever since they had left their slavery in Egypt. So what happens in Numbers 13? God sends out men from each of the 12 tribes as spies. You know, when you think of spies, you know, you can imagine what they're doing. Take your pick, you know, Jason Bourne, 007, Michael B. Jordan, that Amazon movie that no one watched, like, and, and, and sends them, right, to give a report of the land that God was giving them in Canaan. So, here are their names. Shemua, Shapat, Ugal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sethar, Nabi, Guyel, and two guys named Caleb and Joshua. There's a reason why you only name your children after the last two, as we'll discover, right? No offense if you know anyone named Sethel or Nabi. Uh, their mission was to give a lay of the land, to survey the scene and give a report like any good intelligence agency would about the land itself. Because all tourism traps or trips must end in food, you must bring back some fresh grapes, they said, which means that this was likely around the summer months that they went and did this mission around July. So after this 40-day journey of surveying the promised land that God gives them, the consensus surrounding their report goes beyond the scope of the assignment that they had been given. They start moving from reporting to misinformation commentary. Their job was simply to report the news and instead they jumped off into the deep end and started trying to replace God's role with providing them the assessment of the situation. 
What they saw as spies, in other words, was that the situation at hand could not save them. They saw their own fears stoking up. They saw their own insecurities and their own inadequacies arise. We're not strong enough. We're not tall enough. Their cities are heavily fortified. And the consensus among the spies starts to rob their peace about the situation at hand and bring fear into the consensus of God's people. How could God promise this to be the land that we're given? I mean, we thought this was going to be easy. So momentum begins to build over this set of misinformation. And the fear of the spies begin to take over. So let's just pull back from the narrative and, and, and see the reality of the situation here. Okay. The God of the universe has claimed to the Israelites that they will enter into the promised land. All they have to do is take it. That's the truth of the word of God. And the other truth that they see right in front of them, from the perspective of war, the perspective of human logistics and difficulty, from the perspective of sheer disadvantage, the consensus says that there's no way that they should win. So which truth do they choose to believe? Which authority holds greater power for them in that moment? The question of authority is the question that all of us need to consider. Because how you make the choices you make in life tells you where you derive your peace from. If you derive your authority from the consensus of popular culture, then the kingdom of God will never be appealing to you because your greatest authority will be to be approval from the world. On the flip side, if you derive your authority from the consensus of anti-culture, then the kingdom of God will never be for you because your greatest authority will be need to retreat from the world that God so loved that he gave his only son to die for it. If you derive your authority from the consensus of your political party, then the kingdom of God will never be for you because your hopes in a changed world are not rooted in the coming of Christ, but the majority of your electoral body. If you derive your authority from the consensus of moralistic living, then the kingdom of God will never be for you because you'll never see grace for those who disagree with your moral positions, only condemnation for those who disobey. And finally, most important to our text here, if you derive your authority from the consensus of security, then the kingdom of God will never be for you because following Jesus will never be safe in the eyes of others. But it doesn't matter because you'll be safe in the arms of God. Where does your consensus come from? How does this drive you away from the true peace that is being offered in God's kingdom. Caleb and Joseph, uh, Joshua, these two men, see where their authority comes from and buck against the consensus of the spies. So much so that they would risk being stoned by the congregation for even speaking the truth that God has called them to. But they can't live any other way because where they find their true peace is in God's promised land. So here's a truth that we need to hear as believers. No matter what generation you are from, um, especially if you're longing for Christianity to be more readily accepted by the consensus, it is absolutely biblical to long for Christianity to be spread across the world. We, we want to bring about his kingdom in every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yes and amen to that. We long for the promised land just like the spies do. But 
And this is the crux. We dare not think that the success of Christianity depends on whether or not the majority agrees with us. Our greatest concern is, not, is whether or not we are aligned with what adheres to the kingdom of God. Russell Moore, in his must-read book called Onward, I, I think this is one of the most uh, culturally important books of the last six or seven years, um, talks about the reality that most American Christians in the 60s and 70s uh, grew up living. There were large groups of Christians in this time period who called themselves Christian not because they longed for God's kingdom, but because they longed for social and political acceptance in consensus. Because of this, Russell Moore challenges the very idea that America during this period of time was a Judeo-Christian nation. Now, why would he say that? Because he observed in the history that as soon as those who claimed of those who were in the Christian majority started talking about whether or not they believed in the historicity of Jesus, whether or not they believed the necessity of the cross for salvation, whether or not they believed in the authority of God's words, those same individuals in the Christian majority claimed that that message was too controversial. In other words, these people wanted to use Christianity as a tool for political and social progress without believing in the central message of the gospel itself. Because of this, Russell Moore believes that the collapse of the Bible Belt can be seen as nothing but a positive thing for the church and the kingdom of God. Now, now why would he say something that radical? Because of this. It reveals that true believers who are finding their true peace in the gospel, instead of those looking to use Christianity for their social security or their economic prosperity, it untethers Christianity from meaning that you belong to one political party or agree wholesale with one party's political opinions as being authentically Christian or not. It means that the Christian of today is ultimately not worried about which side that they are on and which majority holds a consensus. They are worried if they are on God's side. Because all the promised land of Canaan belongs to the Lord. However fallen it had become and how pagan the land had been. But God still tells his people to go to this land because it doesn't matter how weak they seem. It doesn't matter if we're in the majority. We have an almighty God behind us, and he has promised that his kingdom would come. True peace is knowing where your consensus comes from and where your authority lies. And that leads us to our second point, that true peace doesn't come from familiarity. If you're trying to find your peace apart from the peace of God, what you will run to is leading you back down the path of destruction that you used to walk. This is exactly what happens to the Israelites in our text here today. Notice, look at this passage again. Their response in discovering that they are going to have to face these other nations is fear, is running away from that. They're talking about the Anak, right? Which in Hebrew literally means neck implying that the Anak were very tall in their height and stature. Think about the Dutch in their game against the USA yesterday. They were just tall and dominant. Like the USA couldn't get any headers, right? This was the Anak, right? Um, there's some dispute as to whether or not the Nephilim that are referenced here in this passage are the actual giants Nephilim that are in Genesis. So whether or not that this is hyperbole from the spies is, is not necessarily important, but the point here is clear. 
they become so scared of their adversaries and they become so insecure about who they are that for them, returning to Egypt seems like the life that they wish to return to. For them, true peace is rooted in nostalgia of a history that was never true to begin with. You might even think it's crazy right now at this point to think that the Israelites would forget about what the land of Egypt did to them. Do you remember slavery? Remember the constant, never-ending oppression? Remember the lack of dignity and human value you had? How could you ever want to return back to knowing what you've been through? But lest we judge them too harshly, we must remember that the Israelite story is our story. We, upon hearing God's command for our lives, what do we do with it? We choose to return back to the very things that bring us hell. We look for the familiarity and the nostalgia of a rose-colored past that we once believed gave us this fleeting happiness and joy, but in reality only led us down a path of insecurity. You ever want to you know, just kind of reflect here? Take a look at all the reboots that have come out in the past 10 years or so in our, in our pop culture, right? Um, Cobra Kai, Fuller House, Planet of the Apes, Spider-Man, Spider-Man again, X-Files, Psych, DuckTales, Veronica Mars, Gossip Girl, Gilmore Girls, Girl Meets World, all the Disney films. There's even a new sitcom on Apple TV called Reboot, right? Which is the premise of the show is that they're making a reboot of a fictional TV show. Like, why? <laughs> What's the obsession here? What, what are they banking on? They are banking on the fact that you love the past so much that you'd take another try at something just to give you that little feeling of what you got before. The Israelites want to relive the movie, The Prince of Egypt. Only instead of Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston singing a song of redemption, they wish to remain in slavery and die in the wilderness. What kind of rationality is this? What would lead the people of God who have been carried so far by him up to this point head now in this direction? It's the damning nature of how rebellion against God affects the understanding of our lives and the story we tell ourselves. Trying to find peace in the belief of yesteryear leads to certainly great and fond memories, but it's never gonna lead you to true peace. The Israelites may remember the times in Egypt where they could eat what they wished, but the wilderness has clouded their vision of what Egypt truly was, a slavery that could never bring them the peace that they longed for. So again, for some self-reflection here, some of us might remember a time in our faith even, when we look back and think that things were just better. We might say to ourselves that our relationship with the Lord looked more real, more happier, more joyous in the past days of our yesteryear. We long for those mountaintop moments at the retreat where faith felt like joy. But to do so would only cloud the reality that we knew less about the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord we knew less about the fallenness of the world and the heartaches of life. We knew less about the desperation to which we would need Jesus to come. Going back to the familiar would only mean that we find ourselves less in the place where God has sanctified you and me now today. Some of you might be familiar with the uh, theologian Tim Keller and his recent struggles with stage four cancer. Uh, he recently wrote about his experience after spending a lifetime counseling others through death, now realizing that he has to be like a surgeon that's on the operating table. 
taking his own advice about what death means. The faith of his past collided with the faith of his present, leading him on a journey that led him to move beyond the reflections of his past and go where only faith could go. He writes this, um, if, if we have this quote available. Um, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, this is his wife, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishing good divine gift that it is. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. He is giving us more of his sense presence, more freedom from our besetting sins, more dependence on his word, things that we had sought for years, but only under these circumstances are we finding them. We never want to go back spiritually where we were before the cancer diagnosis. That is why Moses and Aaron in this text act the way that they do. See, they, they really truly know what the people are asking. The people were asking to go back to the times where God is, 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 key, is, is put them in a position of hardship and difficulty, and they're not going where God is telling them to go and moving forward. This is a defiant act of rebellion by the Israelites. This is why Moses and Aaron respond in deep lament. And here we see the contrast, by the way, uh, and the difference between the people of God lamenting in difficult circumstances versus the people of God despairing in dis difficult circumstances. There, there is nothing wrong with lament in the difficulty and pain of our life. Lament is the emotional language of the human heart in a fallen world, crying out to the Lord for help. The Christian life is filled with the desire to have Jesus Christ come into what is broken and reveal the darkest place of our brokenness. That is godly and that is good. Christians need to learn lament. But the difference between what Moses and Aaron were doing and what the Israelites were doing is that the Israelites were in despair. Despair is giving up on God and longing to die, seeing no intelligibility of the world and the story that God has called them to. What the philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls intelligibility of the story that you're living. Lament is feeling the effects of the brokenness in the world and crying out to the only one who can fix it and make things right again. Moses and Aaron understood that the people were choosing in their rebellion to be separated from the goodness of God. When wilderness is what you choose over true peace, wilderness is what you get. The blind pessimism of God's people leads to despair in God himself. And that leads for this first people of God, this first generation, to be forsake from seeing the promised land. God gives them over to their foolishness. And they replace the true peace of God for the familiarity of the wilderness. There is no way to read this passage here today without seeing the tragedy in place here. In longing for the familiar things, they become trapped in the familiarity of sin's greatest devastations. They become enslaved to their own desires to return to slavery. So how do we break free of the wilderness? Well, we know that true peace doesn't come without difficulty. 
Look at Caleb and Joshua's responses again in these verses. They point out exactly what God's promises of what the land would look like. They, they point out that the people of the land, that they have nothing to fear. They point to the God of their salvation. The Christian life cannot look to any other difficulty other than the truth of God's word revealed to push us through, to seek the kingdom of God with boldness. And just as the spies observed, that doesn't mean for us as Christians that we're naive to the scary realities in front of us. That doesn't mean that there isn't an overwhelming opponent in individuals and in institutions and in culture and philosophy that are fighting against the very things of God. But what it means for us is that we look at all of this in the same way that God sees them, that this world belongs to him, that our response to a world that seems insurmountable to overcome isn't fear of the world or fear to engage the world. It's response to faithfulness to the world that God has called us to go and make disciples to reclaim which what already belongs to the Lord in the first place, to bring restoration to those in need of a great hope, especially in our times today, to not fear the enemies of the Lord because we know that there's ultimately nothing that they can do to us. Caleb and Joshua aren't up in the last 10 years that the best ways for Christians to reclaim the land that God has given us is to just simply build a utopian Christian community around it, adjacent to it. A new area where Christians can live together, create the new city on a hill, create a society of only Christians so they don't have to deal with the opposition of the world. They don't have to evangelize to their neighbors. They don't have to deal with the messiness of unbelief. And in the creation of those things, they will build a society which they hope will become undeniably attractive to those outside of it. And that's how we'll win the land back. This is a very popular thought today. And uh, with great respect to those that might have or hold that viewpoint, history has shown us from the early church till today, Christian monasticism has ever rarely worked to advance the kingdom of God. In other words, Christian engagement that looks a lot like Christian retreat, Christian isolation, will only lead to a Christian bubble that fails to challenge and interact a world in need of the gospel and instead only serves to make Christianity easier for those who practice Christianity. But it also serves against fulfilling the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Not only that, but there is a fundamentally, uh, that, 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 that idea is so, so fundamentally against the Jesus who came down and became incarnational, wasn't it? Our world, our Savior enters the world not to create a Christian society that lives apart from it, but Christ enters into the most difficult places, the hardest places, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees dare not enter and reaches into it with compassion, love, faith, purity, and truth. In other words, Jesus never promises that true peace will be easy, but the safest place to minister is in the arms of God himself. I know for many of us in this church, uh, we've been through a great season of trial and turmoil. Uh, you don't need to be told how difficult this period of time has been for us as within this community here, but also for the broader Christian church as a whole. You don't need another platitude about how difficulty is just another pathway for success, so I, I won't say it, because we all know how empty and hollow that can feel. 
But what is absolutely true for us is that difficulty is the road to true peace, not because of our difficulties, but because of the difficulties of our Savior, the pains he experienced for the joy that was set before him. And this is why, ultimately, our last point here, that true peace doesn't come without Christ. The promised land for the Israelites in the Old Testament could have been a great kingdom if only they believed and trusted God as their king. But the Israelites continued to try and find their peace and consensus and familiarity, trying to make their lives easier, and wound up through their sin destroying themselves generation after generation after generation after generation. This is essentially 1 Samuel all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles. Despite God's continual embrace to pursue them in love, they continued to live in an era where the kingdom of God had not yet arrived. True peace was never going to come without Christ. But then what do we see? The king of kings comes on the scene to break the cycle that the people of God could never accomplish on their own. And with his arrival, he makes the bold proclamation that the kingdom of God is here today. And the kingdom of God is near and coming. And that through the sending of the Holy Spirit to his people, you and me, we are now citizens of this kingdom here as his heralds, as his ambassadors, and his stewards. That's you. You aren't called to just sit on your hands and wait for the kingdom to arrive. You've been given the task to spread this kingdom across the nations. You've been given the joy of seeing this kingdom grow and expand. You have seen the dead raised to life. You have seen people repent of their sins. You have seen lament turn to laughter. And you have seen lives who were once living in darkness to come and see the light. In short, you know that the land is already one, Christian. So now, let's go and live not out of the posture of fear of what we could lose or fear that life won't always be what it was, drowning ourselves in the sentimentality and the pain of the past, but let's go in the boldness of the life that God has called us to live, the pathway of our Savior who has won true peace for us in the hardest of places, the cross where our sins were poured out to Him, the wrath of God that He took on our behalf that we could have true fellowship with this everlasting, loving, amazing God. Let's follow in the footsteps of Christ's church, whom in every generation looked at the status quo of the world that they lived in and sought to be peacemakers when there appeared to be no peace, sought to bring life to the poor and needy, sought to bring hope to the hopeless and forgiveness to those who thought they could not be forgiven. Christians, let us be kingdom-minded people looking to the advent of Christ, where true peace will one day finally come, where all our strivings cease, when we look at his glorious kingdom and find our Sabbath and delight in the kingdom that he has given to us. Let's pray together.